Good morning. And yes, I'm back in my little corner of a flat. I wonder when you think about teachers, who comes to your mind? I wonder if you had favourite teachers in school or those who who really kind of engaged with, with, made you really engage with the subject that they were teaching. Teachers, good teachers particularly, can have a, a good influence on us. But teachers can also have a bad influence on us. We can remember, sadly, probably examples from school where teachers were mean to us or perhaps weren't even, weren't even honest with us. Teachers can have a really kind of profound effect on us and on, on our lives, really, and, and how we live our lives. And that links a little bit with our subject this morning because over the past two weeks we've been studying the, the book of the, or the, or the letter of Second Timothy. Now this was a, a letter written by Paul the Apostle uh, to a young man called Timothy who was a church leader in the city of Ephesus which is now located in, in modern day Turkey. Uh, and Bible scholars are, are pretty much agreed that this, uh, this is one of Paul's final pieces of writing. And you get that sense when you read it. it, it almost feels like a last will and a last testament. So what do we know about the context here? Well, what's the situation that, that Paul is addressing here? Well, we know that Timothy is dealing with a lot in the church uh, that he's leading. Uh, false teachers have risen up and are, and are causing real havoc in the church. And over the last two weeks, we've seen uh, Paul giving directions to Timothy concerning these false teachers and, and in the church and, and then how they should be dealt with. Uh, and they'd been speaking these things that, that were not true, particularly concerning key things that we as, as Christians believe. And, and Paul even says in chapter 2, verse 18, that they were destroying the faith, these false teachers, they were destroying the faith of some of the Christians in the church. And there'd also been some arguments and quarrels rising up amongst the Christians in the church as a result of these false teachers. And Paul even says in chapter 2 verse 26 that these people are deceived to the point that they're performing even the will of the devil who, who is the enemy of God and the church. And so Timothy is encouraged to, to instruct these people gently with the, uh, with, with the hope that these people will, will repent, that they'll turn back to the truth. And the truth being the teachings of Jesus and, and, and those teachings which he passed to his apostles, uh, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, the truth of the gospel, if you like. Um, Paul, though, doesn't want Timothy to be uninformed. He's spoken about how Timothy needs to deal with these false teachers. But Paul now, in our section today, also wants to explain to this, to this young church leader that stormy days are ahead for God's church. And that we as his church today need to be alert and on guard. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse, verse 1 to 9. And the words should come up on the screen there for you. 2 Timothy 3 chapter, uh, chapter 3 verse 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
just as Janice and Jambra, oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, I'll grant you, when you first read it, it's not the most uplifting passage, is it? But nevertheless, it, it contains some really key lessons for the church today. So Paul wants Timothy to understand that the church as a whole, all of us as God's people, will face what Paul calls terrible times in the days ahead. We read in verse 1, Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, what does Paul mean by the last days? Well, for those who wrote the New Testament, people like Paul and Peter and John, the last days symbolised the time brought about by Jesus coming to the world. And the coming of Jesus Christ as saviour, his life, his death and his resurrection ushered in a new age or a new time period, if you like. It, it marked the day, it marked the beginning of the last days. And Peter spoke about it in Acts chapter 2 and you can read that on the day of Pentecost where, where Jesus' followers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter in his sermon quotes the Old Testament book of Joel saying that in the last days God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh saying that in effect the, the, the last days have now begun. And in the New Testament book of, of Hebrews in chapter 1, it also talks about the last days, speaking about how God had spoken through many people and many prophets of the Old Testament, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And so the, the last days then began at the coming of Jesus, God's Son, into the world. And so for Paul writing this letter to Timothy, the, they were both in the last days because they were living after Jesus' return to heaven. And if you like, the last days could be simply described as the times between Jesus' first coming in Bethlehem, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return to heaven, and what the Bible describes as his second coming, when he returns for those who love and follow him. This would mean, therefore, that we as God's church today are also in the last days. And therefore, the challenges that, that Paul uh, and Timothy in Ephesus were facing and the whole church at that time, some 2,000 years ago, the challenges they were facing, we as God's church today are facing as well. Now, in the New International Version, which, which I read from, the times or the days ahead for the church are, are described as terrible. The, the Greek word Paul uses to describe the times, kalepos, means hard, difficult, stressful. It, it was sometimes used in Greek literature to de describe dangerous wild animals or, or raging stormy seas. It, it meant manic times, hard to bear, out of control. And this gives us an indication of what we as, as, as the church today should be expecting in these last days. Times of peril and pain and, and hardship and difficulty. And we as the church should not be shocked by this. But one thing I want to say here right at the start is that we should also not be discouraged by this. We as God, God's church have, have all we need to see us through these difficult times. And I hope that will become clear uh, for us as we go. Now, the way we're going to look at this passage is firstly to, to go through it bit by bit, looking at these false teachers that Paul is describing, what they're like and how they act. And I'll, I'll attempt to summarise the situation for us. And, and then towards the end, we're going to look at what we as a church today can learn from this. In the light of what God is telling us through this passage, how do we respond today? 
So Paul, from verse 2 to 5, he outlines to Timothy some 18 or 19 qualities that will characterize these false teachers. Lovers of, uh, lovers of self, lovers of money, ungrateful, brutal, rash, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's, it's quite sobering reading, isn't it? The, these people who, by their behaviour, are showing that though they may be a part of a local church, they may even be a part of church activities, they actually are in opposition to God and are therefore in opposition to the church. They're displaying types of behaviour that are not right for any follower of Jesus to be engaging in. And the thing to note about these people is what is said in verse 5, they have a form of godliness but deny its power. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. Godliness could be de uh, defined as, as devotion to God in action. But this group of false teachers, they, their Christian life in a way is a sham. They're, they may have looked like they were doing the right things, but ultimately they were not on the side of God. And their behaviour eventually would display this. The, the picture of a wolf in sheep's clothing comes to mind here. And Jesus talked a lot about this in the Gospels. People, we could say, who know how to play the game. They could put on the Christian facade. They, they could attend all the services. They could sing the songs on a Sunday. They could say all the amens in the prayers. They could be putting money in the offering bags. Their outward appearance looks godly, but in reality, their hearts were far away from God. It was a form of godliness, but not true godliness. It was outward show, but not without inward reality. Their, their behaviour shows that they never truly trusted in Jesus. They, they never truly submitted to Jesus as Lord. And, and ultimately they're out for themselves because they love themselves rather than love God, as the passage says. And for, for these people, these teachers and, and these opponents who are leading people astray and they're causing havoc in the church, if they do not turn from their ways, Paul says, that Timothy and the church should have nothing to do with such people. In other words, they should be excluded from church life and from church activities. Now, we should be careful here. Paul is not saying that we as Christians should avoid all contact with sin sinners. Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners, it says in the Gospels. And, and in another letter, Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 12, which you can look up in your own time. He, he describes that to not be associated with sinners means that Christians would have to leave the world and God's not asking us to do that either. But what Paul means here is that this specific group he's talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the church at Ephesus, if they do not repent, if they don't turn from their false teaching and, and this consistent pattern of evil behaviour and accept the truth, then the integrity of God's church and its witness to the world is at stake. And, and the church's members are vulnerable and therefore they need protection from this group and its messages. And, and God's church is to represent him. And, and these kinds of activities and, the, and this behaviour have no place in the, in the community of God's people. And so, God, uh, so Paul encourages Timothy to exclude this group from church life if necessary. What we have to remember here is that these people are causing the name of God, who we as the church are to hold up and represent, they are causing the name of God to be tarnished. And that's why serious action may need to be taken by Timothy. 
And then we read in verse 6 to 9 how Paul explains in a little more detail the, the schemes and, and the tactics, in a way, of these false teachers. These, these teachers are described as sneaky. They worm their way into people's homes. And the church at that time met mainly in homes, which is why homes are mentioned here specifically. And then Paul speaks of, of women who have fallen prey to these teachers' schemes. Now, I need to qualify here. This is referring to a select group of women in the church at Ephesus. Not all women are being described here, just as not all the men are being described as false teachers. But what we do learn about this specific group of women are that they were loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, as it says in verse 6. These women in the church, it seems, were, were spiritually weak. They were, they were carrying perhaps some unconfessed sin in their life and therefore they were being tempted to indulge in, in a whole host of other sinful activities. And, and this sinful baggage and this spiritual weakness meant that they, had, um, that they were struggling to resolve not to sin, that their, their weakness, their not letting go of sin in their lives, meant that they were being swayed by evil desires. Now, recently, my wife, Emily, and I put up an outdoor washing line in the garden. Now, the instruction, the instruction said that uh, it was best to use concrete to, for the post to be set in for the foundation. But we thought, nah, it'll, it'll be okay. And so we dug this hole in the earth and we popped it in and left it there. But as the rain came and the wind, it ever so slightly began to lean. And now it's pretty much at a 30 degree angle, even more so when it's weighed down with clothes. And when the high wind comes, it often just looks like it's bordering collapse. So if you ever want to chuckle, if you ever want to laugh, uh, just come to Kingston Park over on a socially distant walk with someone. Walk past our flat when we have washing out and you'll just see this washing line leaning on the brink of collapse. But that, in a sense, that's what was happening to this group of women in the church. Because of the way they lived, the sin that they were engaging in in their lives, the sinful activities that they couldn't stop doing, though they were part of the church, it made them vulnerable to false teachers. Their sin weighed them down and because their foundation was not strong, when the wind of false teaching came, they collapsed, they gave in and they wandered away. And Paul says that their, that their sin even blinded them to, to coming to a knowledge of the truth. Though they were learners, and they, they are described as that in verse 7, they're learners, they failed to distinguish between the truth of the gospel and the, the good news of Jesus and the false teaching. And their sin and their lack of discernment meant that they were targets to the false teachers who Paul describes as opponents of the truth. And then Paul compares these teachers to... to uh, to two, um, to two men, Janus and, and, and Jambres, or Jambra, um, who apparently opposed the Old Testament character Moses. What is Paul uh, talking about here? Why is Paul mentioning uh, these, these Old Testament characters? Well, in the Old Testament book of uh, Exodus, God sent a man called Moses to speak with the Egyptian Pharaoh concerning the freeing of God's people from slavery. And in Exodus chapter 7, when Moses and his brother Aaron met with Pharaoh, they performed a miraculous sign in front of Pharaoh. And in response to this, Pharaoh brought out his magicians and sorcerers who also perform miracles by their secret arts. And now these magicians, they aren't given names in Exodus, but by Jewish tradition passed down, eventually they were given, these magicians were given the names Janus and Jambres. But why is Paul bringing up these magicians here when talking about these false teachers? What, what is that going to do with anything? Well, those magicians in Exodus chapter 7 
was seen to be opposing God's representatives. They were opposing Moses and they were opposing Aaron and therefore they were opposing God himself. They were standing uh, against God and his purposes in the world. And Paul is saying here that these false teachers are also opposing God. They're opposing his truth, the gospel, and, and by their actions they're seeking to disrupt the church's witness in the world. So there's a brief summary then of the passage that we've read. So in light of all of this, all that we've briefly summarised in this passage today, how then are we today to respond? What, what can we take from this? What are the questions that we should be asking ourselves as God's church today? Now, I just have a couple of thoughts for us to reflect on this morning, and they revolve around three W's, worship, word and win. Worship, word and win. So firstly, worship. What do we love or what does our behaviour indicate about what we love most in life? And worship means bowing down to. And what in life are we bowing down to? I ask that question of us in light of that long list in verse 2 to 5 which describes those who are false. Let me read it once again for us. Let me just read it now. Verse 2 to 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3 again. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Do you notice that there's a common word that comes up in that list? Love or lover of. Love or lover of. The, the first one we read is people will be lovers of themselves. And I heard one great comment on this passage, which was that first characteristic, people will love themselves, is like the sewage pipe through which all of the other characteristics flow through. Why do people love money? Why do people slander or abuse or lack self-control? Ultimately, we could say, it's because they love themselves. They worship themselves. And though this passage is to do with the behaviour of false teachers, it is no doubt a helpful place for us to stop and reflect on ourselves as individuals. The list concerns uh, two questions, doesn't it? The list concerns two questions. What's our relationship like with God? And what's our relationship like with other people? The Bible can often act like a mirror to show us areas in our lives where we as Christians need work. Areas where we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work and refine us like, like a potter moulding the clay. God needs to continually reshape us, making us more like himself. And, you know, perhaps we look at that, that list and some of the things on this list and say, are these really that bad? You know, disobedient to parents, is that so bad? Or ungrateful or unforgiving? Lack of self-control, you know, lovers of pleasure. What's wrong with pleasure? And though it can be hard to read, it is clear that all of these characteristics do not please God. And they should not be how we as God's people should be seen to be. God is not these things. God is not these things. And therefore, we should not be these things. And regarding how we are with other people, this point could be, could be a place for us to review. What are the areas in my life that need attention? And what action do I need to take? 
Are there relationships in my life that need healing and forgiveness? Are there apologies that I need to, to make? Are there humble conversations that need to be had? Are there commitments that need to be recommitted to? How are we treating others? This, this list covers in detail how we should behave towards people. How are we doing on that front? You know, a simple lesson I was taught as a youngster, I am still young by the way, but as a young, younger youngster, a lesson that I was taught was to have joy in life, you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Jesus, others, yourself, J-O-Y, joy. That's how you have joy in life. And you think about the example of Jesus, you know, how he served people, how he loved people, how he put their needs ahead of his own, and how above everything he followed the will and the way of his Father God. And we, we need to walk in his footsteps. And in light of that, we need to ask the question of how's my and how's your relationship with God doing? How uh, are, there, are there desires and wants that need to be let go of because we're putting them before God and we're worshipping them before God? What do you and what do I love most this morning? Do we love money and what it brings us or how it makes us feel? Do we love pleasure and love to gratify ourselves? What is your behaviour indicate about yourself and where your love or desire is placed. If, if I looked at your day, for example, what would I conclude is your greatest love? Would I conclude that it's God? Or would I conclude that it's work? Or money? Or possessions? Or gadgets? Or, or house? Or family? Or relationships? Or success? Or, se or sex? Or degrees? Or education? Or power? Or pleasure? And take me out of this, because this is just as much of a challenge for me as it is for you this morning. Let's ask ourselves the question, if Jesus looked at your life and my life right now, would he conclude that you love him before everything else? It's a sobering question, isn't it? And if not, what in your life and in my life are we putting before him? And then what do we need to do to assure, uh, to assure that God is number one in our lives? What are we worshipping this morning? Because that's worship. Secondly, word. What, what's our relationship like with the Bible this morning? God's written word. What's our relationship like with the Bible? God's written word. We may question whether this passage applies to us, but it does. These verses apply to each one of us this morning. Because if we're part of the church, then we have a duty to keep watch and keep guard over its message and its witness. The Bible describes Christians as being in a battle with the, with the evil one, with the devil and his forces. And we are told to be alert. That's all of us this morning. We're told to be alert. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9 says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. False teaching in the church is just one front of the battle, if you like, that the devil is waging against God and us as his people. And we need to be aware of this and we need to be alert. We as the church are God's representatives on earth. We are the ones that say that we know God and we follow God and, and in many ways we reveal God. And 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says this about the church, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let those words just sink in for a moment. We are God's chosen people in his special possession, called out of darkness 
into light. The church is to be uh, the place, we are to be the place set apart from the world where God is worshipped and lifted high in spirit and in truth, where his great and wonderful character and works are declared. But to do that, we, his church, need to know the truth about who God is and what he's done. And we need to study and understand the truth. And we do that primarily through reading and studying the scriptures, the word of God, the written word of God. How often are we taking time to read and soak in the Bible? And we aren't talking theology degrees here. We aren't, we're not talking Bible college courses. Not even that you have to read all the latest Christian books. You know, we're, we're not all readers. We're talking about simple daily meeting with God by feeding on God's written word. Now, being alert also involves critically thinking about what we see and what we hear when it comes to those of us who read uh, Christian books or listen to Christian podcasts or radio or watch Christian TV. We need to be careful in taking everything we read and hear in as truth. And that also includes the Bible teachers on a Sunday. We should be actively testing everything against what, has, what God has revealed in the Bible. This, this passage really highlights how important it is that we have knowledge and understanding of the Bible. This, this passage, passage isn't just for, for church leaders this morning. We, we all have a duty to watch and protect our church from false teaching. Studying the Bible for ourselves and by ourselves, engaging in what we call in the West a daily quiet time or a devotional time. 10, 15, 20 minutes a day reading the Bible. It's so important. That's why the Bible is described as food. We need it every day. We eat every day. We, we have three or so meals a day, don't we? The Bible is actually so much more important than food. It, it, it's what gives us strength. These days, you know, you can even listen to the Bible. Wow, how much would Peter and Paul have loved audio Bible, you know? How easy it is that we can access the, the, the word of God. Studying the Bible is so important. And reading and feeding on the Bible is so important. And studying the Bible, it doesn't need to be just an isolated thing either. We, we could do this together. Being the church means we do this in community. Therefore, plugging into home groups so that we can study and discuss things together as a church family is so beneficial. And understanding the scriptures, the word, is so important because it, it, it helps us to be strong. It strengthens us. It keeps us strong spiritually. Understanding the word of God is so important because it keeps us strong spiritually. The people that were vulnerable to the schemes of the false teachers, the people that were vulnerable to, to, to the false teachers and the false teaching were those who were weighed down by sins in their lives that they wouldn't let go of. And as a result, they were spiritually weak and they were susceptible to false teaching. They were spiritually weak and susceptible to false teaching. That's why dealing with sin in our lives is so important. False teaching will always prey on those who are weaker spiritually and therefore more vulnerable. And that's why we need to equip ourselves to be strong by knowing God through his word. We don't have an excuse. We hold the revelation of God in our hands. His written word. And we have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, helping us to understand. And we have each other. We have the church learning and growing together as a family and as a community. We look out for and we protect one another.
we have all we need. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And so in light of all of this, let's be people of the word. This book, this book is such a gift. This book is such a gift and it's a privilege. We can hold the words of God in our hands. And so then as we do this and as we reflect on this, and we seek to be a community of the word and we seek to be a church of the word, as we seek to be a community of the word, a family of the word, a church of the word, let us look out for one another. Are there those in our family that need a call or a message right now? That need encouragement? Is there someone who comes to mind who, who you've not seen for a while? Maybe you don't know where they are in their relationship with God. And get in contact with them. Maybe you're, you're listening this morning and there's, there's something in your life you're really struggling with. And that's, that's weighing you down. It's proving to be a real battle. Perhaps a sin or a temptation of sin. Can I encourage you to message someone, to speak to someone, someone you trust? Asking for God's help and asking for the help of the church is really important. Perhaps one, one of the elders that you'd like to speak to or some, someone in your home group or maybe a mature Christian you know who you feel comfortable speaking to. Being open about these things can be so tough. But we as a church family are in this together. Let's be a family of worshippers and a family who loves and protects God's word and looks out for and lifts up each other. And so then the final W, we've had worship, we've had word. We've got a nice one, a great one to finish on, is win. Worship, word, win. We win. Christian this morning, know this, with Jesus, we win. Paul ends this little section with some encouragement to Timothy. He says that these teachers, they'll not get very far. Because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now reading this passage may have been tough, this, uh, tough going this morning. Listening to this message may have been tough going this morning. But we should not be disheartened. Paul urges Timothy to be confident. Paul urges Timothy to be confident. God has preserved his truth for 2,000 years and he will continue to do so today. Through church history, heresies and false teachings have come and gone. Like Paul says here, they'll not get very far. But God's word of truth still stands today. And those of us who, who hold to the truth can walk forward with confidence as we seek to hold on to the truth and protect it as a family together. We were, we, so as we reflect this morning on our worship, on our relationship with God's word and with our walk ahead, let us remember that because of Jesus, we win. We have the victory. By his grace, we win. By his help, we will finish the race. And there is a glorious day approaching which, which we're, we're about to sing about now, where this hardship will cease. And our joy will be complete as Jesus comes for us, his church. So as a summary then, this morning, let me just read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 11 again. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 11. Be alert and of sober mind. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and, st and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.